drop. Welcome to the Story Forward podcast brought to you by the same crew that brought you Story Fort Presents Voices of Tree Fort Music Fest. I'm so proud of myself for getting through that because it's going to be more challenging you <laughs> think. I am Larry Rosen, of course, and the I'm, voice of reason I am, me. I am. Who am I? I am, I say. He is not Neil Diamond. He is Christian Wynn. True. This week, as we forge forward in our season of summer stories, we have a treat for you. What is summer without summer camp? Well, honestly, I can tell you because I never went to summer camp. Poor but on this episode, we're going to be speaking exclusively to people who did, including yes. you, Christian Wynn. That is correct. We do have uh, Rachel Levin coming up and Ben Tanzer. We'll, we'll tell you about them in just a sec. But yeah, you did not get the opportunity to go to camp. It's, it's so sad. But your father of a young man right. now in his 20s who went to camp a bunch and also grew up to be a camp counselor. We'll My go. summer camp experience is almost exclusively as as a parent. Although I did go to baseball camp at UC Irvine for tears, but I don't even know if that counts as summer camp. Did you stay the night? You said you did. It's- we stayed the night, but it, but there were no skits. There was no... No singing, uh, probably no singing. No singing. There was no lake. There was no BB guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of that. Summer camp. There was no uh, religious indoctrination. <laughs> Yeah, which there was at my main summer camp. I did go to basketball camp at Stanford uh, two or three times. The main kind of what you call maybe traditional style summer camp with like cabins and counselors and swing pools. We was in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So we'd actually go down to Santa Cruz to the beach on one special day. It was a week long camp. So I know that Rachel went for like two months. We're going to talk to her about that. That's a long time. Her parents must have uh, just said, oh, we're going to have a summer alone. Uh, but mine, yeah. Yeah, I do have one memory as we're we're also baseball fans, Larry very much so, and knows more about the history of baseball and and, uh, literary stories revolving around baseball. But one of my, probably my all-time favorite player, you know who that is, Larry? Thurman Munson. Thurman Munson. I played catcher and he was just this tough, mustachioed New York Yankee who was kind of, he just was a, he was a kind of a quintessential like 60s, 70s into the early 80s like just a tough catcher and not taking any crap from anybody and just especially not reggie not reggie jackson no sadly he met an early demise he um died in a small plane crash Mm -hmm. when he was taking lessons i believe or he had just gotten done taking lessons or now but yeah he crashed in akron ohio where he was from and it was summer and just to tie the two episodes together i was at disneyland when i heard oh man and well i was at summer camp back in the day, early 80s, you know, communication really with the outside world to speak of. And my dad picked me up. I remember like the Sunday, I suppose, of the end of the week, kind of all the parents show up to grab the kids. And he broke the news that my favorite baseball player had recently died this week when I was at camp. And so I, I, I mean, it's a sad story, but it was just like, oh, my gosh, what a weird, complicated set of emotions I was going through there. You just had this euphoric yeah, week. You'll always associate summer camp with Thurman I know dying. that is a, I tell these sad stories in these intros so I mean I pe- you are. people die so <laughs> okay so my camp experience now I mean yeah I went to I, we talked earlier I went to baseball camp twice once when I was 11 it was horrible once when I was 14 and it was like a preview of college and that was a blast but cool. the, the experience is honestly I remember as, as being a parent 
and driving, you know, four and a half hours from San Francisco to this outdoor paradise and leaving my child, my city child there for two weeks every summer. And, you know, you'd pick him up at the end of the two weeks. He, he hadn't taken a shower. He was disgusting. <laughs> he had had the time of his life. And then he had to return to being a city kid. So I wish I had gone. Now, you know, of course, now I'm like, I wish I got a summer camp. So I'm pretty sure it would have been completely different. Probably would have been more like Rachel's experience. Which yeah, mine was pretty which, great. I mean, you, you were about the same age. So you would have been like yeah. in that kind of golden era, I feel like, you know, especially with movies like Meatballs or the other horror movies <laughs> said summer camps and things like that from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, well, more what I'm saying is because I was an East Coast kid, it probably uh, would have been a Jewish camp. And she has said, she says on hers, it wasn't quite as scabby knee, you know, dirty, crazy. But let's talk about Rachel before we get her in here, because she is not just a camp counselor. She is a writer, a journalist. Uh, she has three books, two that she's co-written. One, which I'm going to be... Uh, taken along with me when we go to the state parks uh, later this summer is called Look Big and Other Tips for Surviving Animal Encounters of All Kinds. It's a comedic sort of look at how to look. The title comes from what you're supposed to do if you see a bear. You're supposed to look big. She says during the pandemic, she released two books, one at the beginning, one at the end. At least I hope it's the end. In 2020, she put out Eat Something, a wise son's cookbook for Jews who like food and food lovers who like Jews, uh, written with Evan Bloom. Uh, and then this year, she's got coming out a book, a cookbook called Steamed, a catharsis cookbook for getting dinner and your feelings on the table with Tara Duggan, uh, who writes for San Francisco Chronicle. She is a freelancer and her stuff has been in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Outside, Slate, Food and Wine. Uh, she was an editor at Sunset and I think she was an editor at San Francisco Magazine or maybe just a contributor. Uh, she has a column that's really cool, actually, in the San Francisco Chronicle. I don't know if she's still doing it, but it was called The Usual, and it would look at the relationship between regulars and restaurants. So mm. she'd go to a restaurant and talk to the regulars. Um, and she was the food critic for Eater in San Francisco. So she's pretty accomplished. She, I, I would she didn't say. Know all interviewed you, did you? I did not know all that. She's been busy, <laughs> this Rachel. And she's super fun and funny and has some awesome stories, but... Uh, let me tell you about Ben Tanzer for a second, too. He's a friend of ours from, um, oh gosh, a few years back now. He's a writer, a teacher, a storyteller, a life coach, or just he says coach on his website. I don't see, he might co yeah. coach sports, too. We'll see. He's a podcaster. He's a principal. At, oh, he's a principal at Heft, H-E-F-T, Creative Strategies. But all things book, run, gin, and street art is what he's all about. And he has a story about his summer camp experience and, and his take on summer it. Camp. And in, I believe a Jewish summer camp. This is a very Jewish-heavy podcast. For those of you who miss my old podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? This is a little taste for you. For, for fans of Story 4 Presents, Ben was on an episode Yes, he was. He's going to be back as well. Um, to, actual story for it um, in the in the near future. I think in the spring of 2022. So, that right on. Well, let's just get to this episode with Rachel Levin and and me and Larry. Welcome, Rachel. We're real happy to have you here. Um, and I feel like we're stepping across a time-space continuum because I am in San Francisco right now. We could just as easily be sitting at the same table because you're. Oh, well, we could have been. We should have been. Although, you know, the Delta. Sure. Exhumated <laughs> twice, three times, however many it takes. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about summer camp. Yes. It's more fun. So many of the stories of summer come from camp. Very and true. When I was trying to find, it was funny because we were trying to find someone who would, was a camp counselor. Because a camp counselor will have 
great stories, great insight. Who was a camp counselor? Not me. Not I'm you. Honored. I'm honored. I'm honored. You thought of me. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if you read the camp section in my book. So maybe, or you just thought perhaps I might have been the camp counselor for some reason. Well, you know, in, in times of this, I often turn to my our good friend Bridget Quinn, and I said, "Oh, Grotto people, who do you think was a camp counselor?" <laughs> Well, I mean, it's too bad my husband is um, indoors, otherwise occupied, because he loves to say how he was voted best camp counselor many, many summers at his day camp in upstate New York. So it wasn't an overnight camp. I don't think it counts as much to be voted best counselor when it's not an overnight camp. But he's very proud of that title. And he often tosses it out. In conversation. Uh, does he have like a plaque on the wall or did he get like a medal or like <laughs> but we always call him the camp counselor now like when he's like you know with friends and he's running around with the kids doing like kickball or wiffle ball and i'm just like sitting back with a glass of wine we're like oh there's the camp counselor in action <laughs> I think there are people who are born camp counselors and, and they just sort of carry that through life um and i do at the end sort of want to meld that into take take that idea and meld it into your life now and, and what you do now but let's start by talking about summer camp. And so tell, tell us first which camp you attended and describe it a little bit. At first, as a, I'm assuming it's the same. You went, you were a camper first and then evolved into a counselor, same camp. Very correct assumption. Mm-hmm. That's often how the, the lifers, the camp lifers go. But yes, I started out as a camper at a camp called Camp Young Judea in New Hampshire, a Jewish camp, um, overnight summer camp. And you know, I was a camper and then I was that homesick camper who cried every single day for a month. Like, <laughs> so traumatized. Mm. Did you go for a, a whole summer? Talk to me or come get me. Did, did for you a month, yeah. They just shipped me off at age wow. nine for four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you live? In um, Outside Boston, suburban Massachusetts. So, so I went to this camp. Yeah, and I was miserable. I mean, I cried every single day. Did you write 10 page letters to your parents? <laughs> I, think I, I think I just wrote like one sentence letters like, Come get me. Help, you know? yeah. <laughs> may or may not have received um, some of those letters as a child. <laughs> yeah. But so I so I was that camper who cried every single day. Um, and I did then, since I'm, I did befriend a counselor who was sort of my like beacon and my angel, this woman, Kim Robinson, who like somehow dealt with me every day. Um, so I took, I, I went, um, like I would cry spontaneously over lunch, you know, <laughs> just like, and, but then I'd be so happy later. Anyway, so I went for a month, miserable. Then took a summer off, then went back and have never been homesick again. And then just stayed the rest of my like life till I became a counselor. What happened you know. that second summer that you didn't go? That's such a good question. I probably like went to a day camp. I don't remember. I th- oh, I know. My parents sent me to like an art, uh, I think like a arts camp, like, mm-hmm. um, which I was not like, a, and I was like in dance class, but I'm not a dancer at all. And, you know, so I think I did like some day camp arts thing that didn't work out either. <laughs> So then I went back to the overnight camp and then for two months, I just went back for two months, eight weeks. When they brought up the question though, after like crying for a month, what made you decide you wanted to go back? Well, I think I did. I'm, I'm omitting the fact that after, even though I cried every day for a month, like spontaneously combusted into tears, um, was like this one counselor was like sidekick. I also cried the day I left, like the last day, because I was sad Mm -hmm. to leave. So even though I was homesick every day, I also was sad to leave. I don't know exactly what happened. So I think they just thought I needed the summer to mature (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, so I went back and I had some friends that were there, you know, 
so I think I was there like, are you ready to go back? I mean, I can't believe they sent me back li- literally given what happened. I can't. You're nine years old. That's, that's a tough age to like, yeah, be taken away from your, your normal home. Life. I know. And I'm feeling bad because I just sent my son. To a camp. <laughs> How old is <laughs> he? He's nine. He's nine. Oh, nine. Okay. Did you, did you send him to Tawanga or an unaffiliated camp? No, I can't even get into it. Not to Tawanga, although I'm feeling remorse that we didn't do Tawanga because I think the Jewish California camp is a cool scene. It's it didn't have a lake. And I don't know. They had to go back east with the cousins. So they're at some random camp in Maine that um, my daughter, too, that they used to. That I don't know. It wasn't even our camp, which I'm also feeling remorse that they're not going to our camp. I don't know. It was a lot of camp is hard, Larry. You guys, camp is hard to decide what <laughs> camp. We rejected the Tawaga uh, paradigm because my son went to Brandeis. So we had. Oh, really? Okay. We went to a place called Walton's Grizzly Lodge. Okay. Um, that sounds like a pretty awesome camp. I, guess. I know. <laughs> it yeah. was actually, Ali went, he went every summer and he became a counselor later. And uh-huh. it's up by Portola. So about 45 minutes north of Lake Tahoe. Oh, wow. And it was just, for him, it was a nice break from, you know, 10 months of Jewiness. Well, I would think you can't do, I mean, Jewish school and then Jewish camp would be it's a the lot. Same kids. Yeah, it's the exact same kids. But most of them yeah. go to Tawanga, but he really loved it and it's been there since 1920 it's, i think it i don't know i hope it didn't burn down last week because oh, oh my there. god yeah mm. but no I, we should have i should have consulted you long ago on the camp thing that would have been helpful because i mean i mean because we're not doing the jewish and we don't need to get into this christian oh the christian yeah. camp it's so funny because a friend of mine like when i had my jewish camp and there's like the songs you sing you know i was Throughout the Jewish song, the Jewish camp song that everyone knows, you probably know it, Larry. Maybe not, but I didn't and know then camp. Oh, okay. Then you don't know it. No, <laughs> it's like wherever like, you go, there's all it, it. There's always someone Jewish. <laughs> Anyways, but like my friend who went to, um, you know, when you're feeling newish and alone. But then my friend who went to Christian camp was like, you know, I am a C. I am a CH, you know. Yeah, we did have that one. And there was, I hadn't thought about the songs until you just brought that up. So for our our intro, Larry, I'll see if I can dig out a couple of my old uh, Christian songs. Yeah, I know I'm getting off topic. We can get (laughs) over No, this is all on topic. I do actually want to talk about the contrast between those camps and unaffiliated camps, but I I still, I first want to get to speed. So um, when you were going to camp as a little kid, and, and maybe this wasn't as pronounced, but was it your only opportunity to really commune with nature like that? When we sent my son to camp up in the mountains, it was like, Oh my God, it's, there's the lake and I'm going to be super dirty for two weeks. And then I'm going to go back to the concrete jungle. Um, Yeah. That's a good question because growing up in suburban Massachusetts, the daughter of a video arcade owner, (laughs) I didn't even, I didn't know what nature was. I spent my weekends like, playing Ms. Pac-Man in pole position in malls in Massachusetts. <laughs> so I had never really gone hiking, but my camp didn't, that's, I mean, that was nature. Yeah. It had a lake and I liked to canoe and my feet would get dirty, but you know, it could have been more naturey. Oh, really? Like, you know, I played Newcomb, like, oh, which was like beginner volleyball. So you know, it was that nature. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's the most thing if we played Newcomb too. Never like I, I still have never been able to play volleyball. Like I can't do that. Like it hurt. Like I'm just new. Catch it. <laughs> With the, but so your camp, and this may not be valid because it was a two month camp, but you know, at the, at the two week camps, my son went to the boys would just not take showers. 
and they would be oh. disgusting when they would come back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the shower thing is a whole topic I don't need to get into, but although that was very related to my hatred of camp the first year, because I would not shower because it was like communal showers, it's really mortifying, yeah. mortifying. Yeah. Like I wrote a whole essay that like should never have been printed for um this little book that was a one-off that from Green Apple or Samantha Shea's Pete Mulvihill's wife. Anyway, but there, yeah, showering was tra- a traumatic experience for me <laughs> at camp yeah. because normally you shower alone, but then they had these like communal showers. And, and really mm-hmm. what better time to have a communal shower than when you're 12 or 13? It was, <laughs> uh, we had those too. It yeah, was so. awful. It was awful. And our, our camp now, like the camp we got into, went to now, like has made a point that like they've torn down the shower house, which was this like cement block that was like traumatic and scary and probably inappropriate for you know, a bunch of Jews really anyway and then they had um they have these now they have individual stalls which they're very proud of so showering yes showering was not the the highlight of camp and not not emphasized for boys um so as you're going to camp was it sort of you know you've been going there year after year and you're getting to the age where people either stop going or they sort of enter the system as it were hmm. Was was it a <laughs> foregone conclusion that you would continue on? Another good question for me specifically, Larry, because at our camp, you know, you went to camp and then you became the oldest camper. And then if you were like a good older camper, oldest camper, you got selected to go to the Israel trip, which was amazing. You know, so these you all summer, you know, I think it was only like 26 kids of all the kids got to go or some number. So it was like a selection process. So I made it to the Israel trip. Yeah. Was, and then was, after, was that included in, in the cost of the camp? It's like a different cost. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was an amazing, that was super fun. You're all 15 or 16 and you're, you know, in Israel seeing the, you know, with all your camp friends you've already loved. It was did lovely. That, did that we make didn't get to go to Jerusalem. Right did that make you yeah, ineligible for birthright? I don't know. I never, I had never even heard of birthright for some reason. So I never did it because I guess that's kind of what I did. But in retrospect, that would have been fun. But I think, but it was fun. Um, but so anyway, so on the Israel trip, you know, it was my first time drinking alcohol. So I think that, you know, we all, you know, you get in trouble because you're drinking alcohol and all that. So I think, I think I was a good, I think I was an asset on the Israel trip, but I wasn't like the best camper on the Israel trip. So then, you know, you have to get and get selected from the Israel trip to become back, to be asked to come back to be a counselor. So it's like winnowed down even further, you know, <laughs> so you might not make it to counselor them. So you're saying if you're a camper and you don't get picked for the Israel trip, you can forget about being a counselor. Yeah. Not at that camp. Not at, not at the camp you want to, that you went to. It's sort of like, they're like winnowing out. So I think I've ever been like, I, but I wanted to come back as a CIT, as a counselor. Like um, I was hoping to, and then I did get, I got the last straw. I think, I think I got the last pick, which meant I was a counselor, but I was also not like, that first year, not like a athletics counselor or a waterfront counselor. I had to manage the dining hall. Oh, any That's food fights? We had, we had some good food fights at camp back in the day. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was fun. You know, so I was sort of like the manager. Two, uh, another almost not counselor and I were the di- managing the dining hall. So that was like, which is actually really fun. But it was, you know, and then after that, so I almost wasn't a counselor. But then I proved myself and became, you know, a full-on counselor after that. That was just one season that you were a, ki- a CIT? <laughs> one season. 
I think I got like bunk three, like the little kids bunk, which you never really want. Cause I always thought it kind of just like smelled like urine and like, I didn't really <laughs> want to be the little kids camp. But I think that first year, I think I was countering the little kids bunk and managing the dining hall and then came back and, you know, was an athletic staff counselor. Then I became a waterfront staff counselor, which is like the coolest position. Wow. So they didn't have counselors who were, so how, how do I put this? I'm just remember at, at my son's camp, the counselors, the actual full-fledged counselors for the most part were kids in grad school for teaching. Who oh, grad school. Counselor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they hadn't necessarily come up through the ranks, but yours were everyone had come up through the ranks and become a counselor. Yeah. No, if someone had gone to grad school in our counselor thing, that would, they would have been, you know, next level. <laughs> I don't think we had that. We had, yeah, it was mostly, most like half were probably like former campers and then other friends of former campers and then some new people like from abroad, you know, other countries came. So that eventually you had your own, you know, ecosystem of counselors, but a lot had been, um, <clears throat> yes, coming up through the ranks had been there since they were nine <laughs> an hour, <laughs> you know, so then you're basically like a camper still, but you have this title of counselor. Like you feel like you're a camper, but you just have more power, more fun. You're allowed yeah. off campus. When you did become a counselor, it was, you're like just out of like high school. Yeah, I guess it was after senior year, junior, um, summer, Israel trip was summer after junior year. So summer after senior year of high school and then, and then through count through college a little bit. Yeah. I'm curious, like what, when you went behind the curtain on the other side, like yes. what were maybe some surprises or some, what was that like? I mean, cause behind you know the that the counselors probably just talked a lot of a lot of shit about the kids sometimes but I I, I feel like we're not the best camp campers all the time and I'm sure that there was gossip but well yeah, yeah there, was, there were some like glimpses from the other side once you got well it's funny because I think when you're a camper I mean your your counselors are the coolest people you know you you look up to them like you really revere them like um, you know, there's that Dar Williams folk song that where she like loves the babysitter. It's like the babysitter's here. Like counselors are like a hundred times cooler than a babysitter, I think. So, so once once you become a counselor, I think it's like the closest like civilian civilians might come to like having fans and being kind of famous and having like people like you know like like like. So once you're a counselor, you feel like oh, I, they actually think I'm cool. These campers, you know. So that was kind of nice. So on the flip side, you're like seeing now you're like I'm the cool counselor and you see how these kids kind of look up to you and like want to hang out with you but on the on the flip side like the counselor that I mentioned earlier this woman Kim Robinson who like befriended homesick me little nine-year-old me I was probably so fucking annoying for her like she loved me but like she had to deal with me every day all day just like crying by her side so I don't remember as a counselor having that like level of homesick camper but I did remember you know understanding understanding someone's homesickness and as, and all that but um also though as a camper you have no idea that your counselors come back like drunk to the cabin and this can be off <laughs> I, I was gonna ask about that yes yeah, so. <laughs> it's like wet hot American summer <laughs> yeah. it was like you got to leave you know you'd go out to this pizza place that served I think what I forget what was oh well the, you know the back room and they'd serve pictures of like beer for like a dollar and pizza <laughs> and the counselors got to go out at night and then come back to their bunks. And so you never really knew. I don't think I ever knew that, you know, counselors came back kind of midnight, a little tipsy. Or that they might have been hungover in the morning when you're crying next to <laughs> It's just how you want it to be as a, you know, hungover with all these campers and, coming in. <laughs> and as a parent now, I mean, the, the idea that 
here, take my kid for two months, 19 year old person. <laughs> it's a little absurd. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, but then it's, it is sort of like this its own little world, you know, you don't, you don't think, I think as a counselor, you don't realize how young you are. You think you're kind of old because you are not a camper. You are a counselor. So you think you're older than you are because it's this world where no one's that old. Like, really. like, well, the camp, my camp experience, at least the summer sleepover camp, um, I went to a couple sports camps too, but uh, there were like adults involved too. I feel like the like the high, like the higher ups were maybe yeah. like regular adults, like, yeah, our age. Or, you know, the I administration. Mean, the administration, like the administration would keep the, <laughs> the, I guess, early 20s counselors in, in check, probably. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other thing about being behind the scenes as a counselor, which is funny too is that you know care packages for contraband you weren't allowed to have as a camper food sent to you you know because it's not fair or animals or you know but parents like especially jewish parents like always trying to like finagle how to get their kids food like you know the 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 lengths to which they would go to like hide food into in packages is hilarious and i put that in my we have a section and eat something in my cookbook about parents seeking like cans of Pringles and putting in um, taking out the tennis balls and putting in Pringles or you know just things like (laughs) tampons instead of tampons you put in Smarties like it was like people went to all these like and so as a counselor behind the scenes you got to like sit in the head bunk you know and get the mail and go through packages it was like you know you're you're going through the kids packages and all the food that come the parents send that the kids aren't allowed to eat you eat which is so fun so you're like oh brownies (laughs) you know uh, the Goldbergs and Waltham, you know. Yeah. Times when the parents were a bigger challenge than the kids. I mean, it was. I think it was earlier before parents had like that much say in things. Like I think parents used to defer more to um, the, the rules of the institution. So I, I feel like I never personally dealt with parents except for the last day when they would tip you. You know, they'd hand you cash. Oh. Mm-hmm, which is nice. Wow, I didn't know that was a thing. I don't know my my parents did that. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and then you like you know you're like because you don't get paid. I don't remember what you get paid as a counselor, but it's not that much, you know. And then you make it up in tips. So I love the parents. I, I mean, I think you might maybe leave a postcard home to the parents, but I don't really even remember dealing with parents except for like accepting that envelope of cash at the end and saying thank you. It's the strangest thing as a parent <laughs> when you go to pick your kid up and you realize they've created these relationships with these other semi adults. <laughs> it's, it's really odd yeah like these these figures these adult figures heroic adult figures yeah Hero- i mean cooler than you'll ever be larry oh, totally. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool too so yes i'm curious then on that note too I, I, have you stayed friends with any like former campers or counselors um or your favorite counselor from when you were dying or anything like that you know, I mean, some counselors that are on Facebook, it's so funny because you see them and they're adults and they have children. And I guess I do too now. So you see each other, but you still see each other as the, as, as you were, but yeah, like our old, um, I don't know that where that one counselor is who like saved my life that year, but, um, I should find her. And then, but yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the people, the people who led our Israel trip who are now like older and kids have graduated college, like they see us and, you know, on Facebook or on Zooms when we have some, you know, Zoom pandemic reunion things. And um, it's fun because the relationships are still are still there. But yeah, um, it was the people who became counselors after campers that I'm still close with. Like the the camp, I think counselors really cement the camper connection. Like if you continue on, it's lifetime. Yeah. Apart from, you know, having attended adult Jewish camp and written about it for the New York Times and and (laughs) 
and and having a sense in your career of being willing to take on adventurous assignments, how has being a camp counselor really informed the rest of your life? Um, thank you. I forgot about the adult Jewish summer camp story for a second, but that um, that was one direct way that it did. I mean, I would never have thought about writing about adult Jewish summer camp had I not gone to summer camp. Like that was amazing. Just to um, replay that. that. Yeah, but, um, that, story was, that story was great, by the way, from a Jewish angle, because, of course, a bunch of Jews who think to go to Jewish adult camp and insist they're not very Jewish. <laughs> Every last one of them. I know. Uh, I, know I know. It's the cultural Jews. Yeah. Um, thank you. I mean, and I don't know. I think I mean, I do think like, you know, people, especially as a camper or a counselor, like you always sort of everyone is an individual and everyone has their stories and and their personalities. And so I think maybe in some ways that, you know, you sort of pigeon, not pigeonhole people, but you like kind of look at people and figure out who they are, you know, in your bunk or, you know, there's the, the girl who's sitting up on, in her like bikini top on the top bunk and like she has all her stories, you know, <laughs> you're, or, the, or the kid who's kind of nerdy and comes to like raid the bunk. I don't know. I feel like there's just stories that are happening in individuals and characters, like campus filled with characters. And so um, I'm not a fiction writer. I'm a journalist, but I do feel like you can sort of, it helps you sort of like craft characters maybe in a way, like, cause everyone's yeah. such a character and has their role. I don't know. That's, if that's a chicken, chicken or the egg. I know. I don't know. Equation, you might've come into it already seeing that stuff. <laughs> I know. I, know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's informed other than like for me in terms of just, um, it, 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 it was an identity, you know, it's, it was a, identity for a while like being you know I had friends who went to camp and friends who didn't go to camp and so you know it definitely like you're you're if you're someone who goes to camp that's you know that is um completely different from someone who who didn't go to camp and all my waspy friends who had no idea what camp was um mm. you know <laughs> were, <laughs> loved it were so envious and so jealous and so like wanting to know like what was camp and so I think um I don't know. I don't know how it informs writing. I mean, letter writing, you could say it was a form of, oh, I mean, letter writing and um, connecting with friends. That was a big thing. Like we used to make, um, before podcasts, we used to um, record audio tapes to send to friends mm -hmm. um, at camp. So I guess had I been a podcaster, that would have been a direct line, but I'm not, but you know, like we would record them and be like, hi, um, you know, hi, hi, Farley, I miss you. And <laughs> you know, here's what I'm doing. And, you know, so I feel like the, the, the recordings were big. You grew up, with two, you grew up with two sets of friends. I did. I did. Especially because one was like this, like waspy world and one was the Jewish world. And the, the outfits were totally different too. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, also another component of the camps I know from, in my personal experience um, was the camp romance, like mm -hmm. you were trying to like meet a, for me, meeting a girl, maybe by the time I was 12 or 13, that became a thing. Then all through high school, I was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Taught, yeah, taught me kind of um, that I was not so smooth as I thought. <laughs> yeah, a little times I was a girl I liked, and then she just gave me the cold shoulder. And was that a big component of the camps you attended? And also on the, when you became a counselor, mm. like there had to be some hookups happening there too. Oh, I yeah, think. I forgot. I mean, so, so yeah, as a, count, as a camper, I was super shy. Um, and as a counselor, I was super shy. So I was really shy. I never had the camp relationship. Some people did. And then it was, you know, oh my God, one friend of mine had a relationship with a counselor, but totally, 
Yeah, I just remembered that, but not in the inappropriate way because he was still underage and she was 15 and he might have been 17. I don't know. You know, but the, but still not cool. <laughs> yeah, there's I don't know. There. Yeah. But so there was a lot, you know, there was and then the boys I remember would like come over and like raid girls area and raid the cabin. Mm-hmm. But nothing ever happened. Like it would just be like come and talk to you, you know. Um but there and then like as a counselor, yeah, it was a little bit like I mean, relationships are kind of a strong word. I feel like <laughs> what was going on as as a counselor. But um but you know, I did have my first like you know, in Israel with this guy, kid or guy or boy, you know, who I was too shy. He, um, I had like a, I butterfly kissed him, which is when you like link <laughs> oh, eyelashes. <laughs> I wouldn't kiss him, kiss him. I'm really, I was really shy. So as what I remember, it was like, you know, he confessed his crush. And then I was like, we, I don't know. I remember like doing the eye, the eyelash <laughs> kiss. <laughs> I mean, so that's kind of sweet. Um, that is pretty sweet for sure. Uh, I feel bad. I should have just kissed him, but I don't know. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you if you any crazy counselor stories because I think you've kind of filled in and, and we don't want someone <laughs> randomly listening that's going, oh, Rachel Levitt, she was my counselor. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, I can't remember. I mean, I do remember as a counselor, I didn't have any crazy, I really didn't have any crazy stories that I can think of, but I do remember like, eventually when I had the older camp, the older campers, like really loving hanging out with them. Like mm-hmm. I could have got, like, I almost like, it was fun to go out with the counselors to the pizza place and drink all the beer, but that kind of got old. And I would love to kind of hang out with these like 12 and 13 year old girls and just like chatting. And I loved that. I mean, I did love, I loved the hanging out with them and I loved, um, and now I realize they're only probably a couple of years younger than me. Right. <laughs> you're, you're, you're contemporaries now, but you never yeah. entertained the thought of going into teaching as a result of this. No, I think, I know, I don't, I don't, <clears throat> I think, cause like, eventually I was like, okay, you know, everyone has to like leave camp. Some event, I mean, some people I know have not, <laughs> but really you have to move on. So I think when I left camp, I sort of, you know, I remember like, well, I can't keep going back to this camp. It's been like, however, meant 12 years. Like I need to do something else with your, with my life. So I went into waiting tables. I mean, I, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which wasn't, you know, I, then I think I kind of missed being a counselor, you know, like. I was in the Berkshires at the Red Line. My first post-camp job was as a waitress at the Red Line and in the Berkshires, which, you know, it made the camp outfit look way cooler because it was like, I had to wear this like pilgrim outfit and I was like serving iced tea to all these bus tours of old ladies. And like, I kind of missed the kids, you know, I missed the kids. But it was still, it was still, the Berkshires are still camp. Still felt like camp. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I feel like I never, I know I loved, and I, I hate, the thing is I hated babysitting as a, kid like my mom would make me babysit for her friends kids and I hated it but then I liked being a camp counselor so I think I liked like the world that camp creates and I loved the you know I loved teaching kids I mean I taught swimming to my sister's husband (laughs) it was like I was Mike Herzlinger's swim instructor you know and I feel like I remember him like you know figuring out how to and though you're and though you're not a fiction writer um you do create worlds in the stuff that you write you know, and you mm. do visit worlds in the stuff that you write. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Connection in that way. Yeah. You know, and I do feel like I do like sometimes writing about, about these like crafted worlds. Like my first story yeah. I ever wrote for the New York times was about um, this community called soup, which was um, this like pre, I don't know if it was pre, it was like kind of a mini grassrootsy burning man where you had to get invited. And it was like adult, it was, it was adult camp without the Jewish part with more like, mm stuff going on 
um, this random land in Mendocino. But I do, yeah, I feel like I felt, it feels familiar in a way to go into these worlds that are um, created and campy. And I guess I have written a few yeah, things like that. You do, you do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then your travel writing as well. I mean, that's kind of a similar experience, like going to wherever you go, you know, stand immersed, you know, getting immersed yeah. in that culture as much as you possibly can. So yeah. 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 And there's something nice about. about like kind of popping in somewhere and being in this one that it's like a world that's, um, you know, and I've, yeah, I've done this with like other things where you do, even if I got like a boat trip, I once wrote about for, um, Sunset Magazine, I was with like only eight people on this boat, but it felt there's like, <laughs> you learn how to, um, navigate the relationships and the people. And you're just kind of, did you do a, did you do a hunting story recently? I did do a hunting story. Um, yeah, yeah. That was um, for outside, and um, we well, I mean, it was a bow hunting with um, bow and arrows, which we did have archery at camp, uh-huh. um, and riflery at Jewish camp. <laughs> but wow. on the hunting trip, I had, I mean, those bows. I didn't even, I didn't, I wasn't prepped. I was, I was just sort of tagging along on the hunting trip. I wasn't. Those bows were nothing like the archery set at, at Camp Young Judea, and the riflery. I did, we didn't have guns, but I was like, I have, I have shot a rifle. I did have riflery, <laughs> uh, but there were no deer and or bird or, you know, there's nothing to kill. No. no. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, well, shall we hear about uh, what you have going right now in the publishing world? And yeah, as we wrap it up, let us know what you got. What do you got going? What do I have going? I mean, let's see. I've been, well, I published a new cookbook. I published two cookbooks during COVID, I kind of bookended COVID with cookbooks. So I have Eat Something, a Wise Sons cookbook for Jews who like food and food lovers who like Jews, which came out March 2020. Mm-hmm. And then I had um, a cookbook that I co-authored um, also called Steamed, a catharsis cookbook for getting dinner and your feelings on the table um, with uh, Chronicles' Tara Duggan. And uh, we published that in May, um, which is all about, you know, cooking your feelings as opposed to eating them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that feels timely and fun. And then I've just been writing articles. I have a um, couple like maybe kids books in the works, mm-hmm. um, which is not something I've ever done, but I think it's been sort of what I've handled during COVID, but, um, mm-hmm. but also kind of fun, like food and kids kind of cookbooks um, or books, not cookbooks. And what else do I have doing? What else am I doing? Just freelancing which is really fun so i've written about like runners for runners world or wrote um some features for outside about um you did that tahoe one yeah it was about you know zoom towns and 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 everyone kind of coming into a town and with their laptops and their money and buying it up and so we use tahoe as kind of an anchoring i used yeah i used that one i think i referred to it i used it as an inspiration for a column i wrote for the exam oh oh cool oh i didn't see that yeah. Thanks, Larry. I mean, yeah, it was it was fun. It was yeah. It was fun. I mean, the whole issue is like who's a local, who's not a local, mm-hmm. who belongs, who gets to be there, who doesn't. Um yeah, so we're dealing with a lot of that in Idaho. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Ketchum was like we were I was like, should we they were like, well, should we use Ketchum or Tahoe? And we're like, Tahoe just had more dynamism going on because of the duck's position with Silicon Valley and all that. But Ketchum, I mean, I in Boise, I'm sure is just I mean, yeah. I know that the realtor in Ketchum, I mean, it's off the charts. What's going on it is crazy, Valley. yeah, yeah. Um, it's like Oregon and Washington were thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, Boise is the coolest town. If I were you, Christian, I would be worried about Boise. It's a cool. T- it is going to be the it next a, town now. It's 
Yeah, it's it's growing by leaps and bounds. But uh, where I live, at least, just to the side note, not related to summer camp, but I was like kind of right in the core. So it stayed pretty much the same, like right by downtown and the old North End and all that. So okay, so uh, so before we go, Rachel, you, do you have a website, uh, social media that we can refer to people to? I do. I have a website that needs updating, but it's byrachellevin.com because there are a lot of Rachel Levins out there. But by by Rachel Levin, get it with the mm-hmm. byline. And um, I'm occasionally on Twitter, Rachel Levin SF. Okay. Um, Instagram, fledgingly. Good. You know, so. Good. Yeah. Right. Cool. Well, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well. And pe- send people to your, to Thank buy your you. book. And we always like to say, we'll try to get you up here for Story Fort at some point in time. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. yeah I'm, so. trying assemble, I'm trying to assemble a murderer's row of grotto people. Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> No, thanks Ooh. for thinking of me. And I, I mean, I love, honestly, I was honored when, when Larry reached out asking if I'd been a camp counselor. Well, thanks, Rachel Levin. That was awesome. Thanks, Larry, for guiding us through that. And uh, it was really a, a fun conversation for me as well. But we have another really great storyteller coming at you, Mr. Ben Tanzer and his take on summer camp. Hi, my name is Ben Tanzer. And I'd like to read you a piece I wrote called The Failure to Join a Cult or How I Learned to Love Summer Camp, a memoir. During a time in my life rife with reflections on all the ways I've failed, especially the many roads not taken, what does it look like to reflect on a decision that was anything but a failure? Let's see. First, It seems important to note that this decision had nothing to do with escaping from or joining a cult. It's just that looking back, it seems like it might. The setting of said decision was bucolic and lush, rolling hills, forever blue skies. It was tucked away on a compound in upstate New York, a place oddly attractive to cult leaders and their followers. Those of us who embraced this decision were welcomed into a loving family led by a charismatic leader and nourished with comfort foods we didn't get at home, including but not limited to sloppy joes and little boxes of sugar cereal. It was a safe space where we were liberated from lives that didn't really work. And while those of us drawn to this mountaintop utopia may have come from all walks of life, we got each other and spoke the same language something that wasn't guaranteed when we were away from there. There were rituals, too, as well as weekly community-building exercises, a structured schedule of activities, isolation, repetition, groupings by type, and the belief that we had finally found ourselves. We were indoctrinated into a way of life, yet believed we'd found and built a place that was a pure manifestation of our own dreams and desires. There was the rest of our lives, and there was this, a holy bifurcation that reflected the two ways we might live, one endured, the other a sort of nirvana. It really wasn't a cult. It was Camp Arbeck, the greatest summer camp the planet has ever known. It might be dramatic to say Camp Arbeck saved my life. But it is not excessive to say that attending RBAC was the best thing that ever happened to me up to and at that point in my life. What is a cult exactly? According to an article at Oprah Daily, the warning signs of a dangerous cult can sneak up on you. That depends on who you ask. 
So Merriam-Webster defines a cult as the great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, and as a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious. Further, a destructive cult is dishonest from the beginning, meaning destructive cults always lie to new members about their true intentions. You might think you're getting a free dinner. You're learning a self-help technique. You don't realize that the goal is to get you to sign up for a week course. And it's a two-week course, a six-month course. And then they want you to divorce your wife, give over your assets, and work for no money. This may all be true. But in my experience, it's the need for great devotion that hooks you. Kim Barbeck was run by the Bronson family, and we were devoted to them. Janet Bronson was the loving but no-nonsense matriarch at the face of the organization, a small but powerful Jewish woman from Brooklyn in khaki shorts and a polo shirt, jet black hair just starting to gray, an ever-present clipboard, and several pairs of glasses hanging around her neck at any given time. Her husband, Leo, was a quiet, behind-the-scenes, take-care-of-shit kind of guy who always wore a loose white v-neck t-shirt and khaki pants. Their children all worked at the camp as well. Arthur, the AR in our back, possibly the middle child and only boy, Barbara, the BA, and the youngest, Karen, who provided the K. Barbara was the head swim instructor slash camp goddess and had a beautiful bandana-wearing, flowy shirt, no-makeup, ethereal 1970s folk singer vibe that was balanced out by the solid blue one-piece bathing suit that she wore at the pool. I have no idea what Karen did, and she didn't seem that much older than us anyway. But my memory of her is cut-off jeans, a Jewish nose, I'm a member of the tribe as well, it's cool, and a big smile the memory of which is heightened by the time I saw her dancing on the summer streets of Provincetown, an image that for much of my youth and even now captured what it looks like to be free and without a care in the world. Arthur was a counselor, our counselor, and we loved him. In my early 20s, I was on a mad search for knowledge. I had awoken one morning having done exceptionally well in college, and having excised the ghosts of my academic failures in high school, wondering what I knew about the world or what makes it tick. I wanted to understand things like the troubles, the underpinnings of apartheid, America's relationship with Cuba, and the state of Israeli-Palestinian relations. This wasn't a political search, though it was inherently political. It was, however, a desire to not feel quite so fucking dumb about everything, to be able to carry a conversation on these topics, to see myself as an intellectual, all of which I had failed to pursue prior to this. I drove out to San Francisco after graduating from college the summer of 1990, and on the way I started reading the newspaper every day, trying to glean what was happening, well, everywhere. Once in the Bay Area, I continued to read the newspaper before work, but added the books of Carlo Castaneda, among others, seeking out anything that would tell me about anything. In 1992, I moved to New York City and decided to take actual classes and elevate my learning to some undefinable next level, where some still ill-defined sense of intellectual self-actualization awaited me. What I found was a school that taught philosophy classes on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It was a classic-looking brownstone set back from the street with an enormous wood door and a plaque to the right of the entrance marking its name and mission, the New York School for Human Achievement, 
or something quite like it. It was populated with thin, pale men and women gliding about the space in black turtlenecks, horn-rimmed glasses, and highly tussled hair. If you got there early, you could purchase fruit and nuts and little baggies and tea in the basement. I went to class and listened to lectures on famous philosophers. I did not retain a thing. As class wound down, we were invited to visit the school's upstate New York retreat and do chores on the grounds. This did not make sense to me. I had never spoken to a single person at the school. I didn't care about anyone there. I was on a search for something, but it wasn't landscaping. That was the end of that experiment. Months later, I got on the bus and a woman approached me aglow. I realized she was from the class. She sat down next to me and asked why I had never visited the retreat. She had been going every weekend, she said. It was beautiful. Everyone was welcoming. She had found herself. Why not join me, she asked. And she stared at me, smiling, her hand now on my knee. It wasn't clear to me that we were traveling in the same space-time continuum. Or if I was being recruited. I declined, but felt it as discomfitting as the moment had been. She had found community, whereas I had not only failed to do so during my time in New York, I had no idea that might happen at all. Camp Arbac was typical in many ways. There was a schedule of activities. We had swing class, nature and arts and crafts, lunch and all the whole milk we could drink. We played tetherball. It's just that it was also not typical. One of our favorite activities at our back was boating on the camp's pond. There were rowboats, canoes, and kayaks. And the intended focus of this activity must have been water safety and learning how to respect sailing. But we were allowed to engage in what we called oar wars. Full-on oar, paddle, and bucket-driven splash battles where all of our pre-adolescent aggressions and epic fantasies were played out under the summer sun and watchful eye of Pete, the boating instructor. We were also allowed to swear endlessly. I'm certain I could curse at home, as could my co-campers and good friends, Adam Lawrence and Eric Boyne, but it still felt subversive, operating as if we were outside the norms of polite society. Then there was Camp Arbac's crowning achievement, flower power, in which the boundless grounds of camp and the campers themselves were split in half for the once a summer, afternoon-long, camp-wide game of Capture the Flag, a sweeping event heightened by our week-long efforts to create as many flower bombs as possible, flower wrapped in tissue paper and bound, which when successfully thrown at a competitor forced him to freeze in place for 15 seconds ensuring one's capture, swarded glory, and the great likelihood that no flag could ever be captured because no one would ever get in and out of the circle protecting the flag without sustaining hits from multiple flower bombs. Which is to say, no one ever won, but it didn't matter. It was a dirty, sweaty, flowery affair that felt glorious even in its ongoing and certain failure. It was the 1970s. Things were laxer than they are now. Everyone smoked cigarettes everywhere and unabashedly as we spent our days drifting through the endless waves of smoke. People drove drunk and talked about it as if it was a normal thing one might do, even teachers. So maybe it was. 
Everyone's parents worked, went out of town for days at a time, or out at night for drinks and food as we slept. No one talked about grooming or signs of abuse. No one addressed suicide as committed by peers or any death of the young or cancer. We never talked about cancer. Teachers and coaches slept with students. HIV AIDS was not yet a thing. Not that anyone talked about sex in any hopeful way either, or anything preventive, really. I don't even believe we were required to wear seatbelts then. It also seemed that anyone could start anything they wanted to, a school, a church, a commune, a nudist colony, a restaurant, a food co-op, or a summer camp, and no one would even care. That may be me looking back as a helicopter parent raising children both post-9-11 and during an era fraught with Amber Alerts and the exposure of the inner doings of the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts, and most institutions run by men and unsupervised by any kind of authority, as well as being a product of that era in all ways, a solid Gen X, rule-bound, former latchkey kid, though my parents never locked the doors, was also an independent, flexible, and critical thinker, yet scared to raise my children in the same way I was raised and quick to push back on anything that seems neglectful. What I recognize now is that people crave structure and authority, and when society is questioning whether any of that is needed, or as with most of our parents and caretakers, actively rejecting it, mine, Adam, and Eric certainly, people will seek structure and authority regardless even when others build those institutions for ill. What I also know is that children need somewhere to go and something to do, no matter this rejection. And that in the midst of all that, my parents chose to send me to the local Jewish community center summer camp. The camp was torture, which makes for a dramatic flourish, but doesn't mean it isn't the truth. Most of the campers are from the next town over. They were rich and wore polo shirts. I was not and did not. They were good athletes and I wasn't yet. They went to sports camps and joined leagues. I hadn't done those things. My one attempt at Little League tryouts ended with my running home in tears after a girl stepped out from behind me during an outfield drill and caught the ball intended for me to great fanfare. I consumed books and comic books. I loved Twilight Zone and Mad Magazine. I drew comics. I watched Star Wars and Dallas obsessively. I was happy, but I had failed to discover what I was good at or find a group of friends I could commune with. At school, I hung out with the outsiders, the rough kids. I got into fights. And at the JCC camp, I failed at any idea what it was with these rich kids, how they lived, who they were, why they were like they were. I lived on a different planet than they did. There was also lunch. My parents never seemed to grasp what packing a proper lunch entailed, a sandwich with actual bread and lunch meats neatly wrapped in tinfoil, or a baggie, cookies, juice boxes, chips. We never had chips, except carob chips. And what the fuck is carob anyway? Per the kitchen website post, what exactly is carob anyway? Carob is a less melty chocolate substitute that is less bitter than chocolate, while also being caffeine-free and high in fiber. Whatever. The lunch scene at JCC was a nightmare. The other kids would slowly unpack their lunches in their neat bags, laid out in neat, organized packaging, then neatly move from segment to segment as I stared at my ratty PB&J, the peanut butter and oily all-natural morass from some co-op, the source of the jelly unclear, the roadside farm stand, the likely culprit, a handful of cookies loose in a float, 
around the bottom of the bag. I would stare at their lunches and sometimes ask the rich kids for some chips. It was humiliating. Lest you think I exaggerate, in high school I became friends with a number of those rich kids. And when I told one of them how torturous the JCC camp had been for me, he replied, What did you expect showing up with those fucking lunches? Indeed, the saving grace would be Camp Arbeck, though the real saving grace was the friendship I formed with Adam, as well as Eric, a fellow outsider who attended school with those rich kids. Adam arrived at my elementary school in second grade. On his first day, as I did math, he was assigned to the reading group, and after he finished the assignment quicker than most, he was left alone at a table in the corner of the room with some blank sheets of paper and a handful of crayons. As the teacher ignored him, Adam sat there coloring for what seemed like hours. When the teacher finally checked on him, she immediately marched him to the principal's office. I walked over to look at the work they'd left behind. Adam had written, fuck you, repeatedly all over the page. Over the years, Adam, with his young parents and cool uncles, would have both the interest in and access to a treasure trove of cultural touchstones that we both shared, X-Men comics, Star Wars, but also many that he introduced me to, the Ramones on vinyl, the New York City-style midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show at Binghamton Plaza, tickets to the Born in the USA tour outside of Albany, and the Basketball Diaries, my personal white album. He led me to and guided me along a path and a different way of life that I hadn't known existed. There were all these activities and interests that hung together and in their intersection formed a way of thinking, being, and talking about things that I failed to see were not my interests alone, as unformed and lacking clarity as they were. Adam also introduced me to Camp Arbeck after I told him and his mother one afternoon how much I hated the JCC. Which is to say he recruited me and I followed him gladly. I later recruited Eric in much the same fashion, which is also to say that Adam, then Arbeck, changed my life. My move to San Francisco in 1990 began by leaving New York and driving cross-country for five weeks with another friend of mine. We camped, played ultimate frisbee, hiked, slept on people's couches, and took copious amounts of drugs. Near the end of the trip, we landed in Los Angeles and wandered the streets. We must have looked scruffy, if not exactly unclean, ebullient, but road-weary, young and searching. At one point, a person standing on a sun-bleached sidewalk offered us donuts to take IQ tests in the storefront office behind him. I suspect he believed we'd test poorly. And appearing as we did, we lacked some fundamental insights into the world and ourselves, and that this would be an opening for him to pitch us on some life-altering opportunity. The proctor could not have assumed we would test at genius or near-genius level, but looked appropriately stunned as he read the results, fumbling for a moment before catching himself and saying, With scores like these, your potential is unlimited. You just need the proper direction and guidance. Let me tell you about the classes we offer. We skipped the rest of the pitch and left for Venice Beach, donuts in hand. Later, I realized that it was a recruiting space for the Church of Scientology or something quite like it. Per the Oprah Daily, with mind control cults, there's that hook. You think you're going to improve your life. And then there's incremental disclosure about what the group is actually about. They only tell you what you think you're ready to swallow. 
There wasn't a single moment when I decided to move out west that I saw it as an attempt to improve my life, though that's very well what I might have been thinking. My idea, which is more clear now, was to reinvent myself, to not be where I was or what I was, to somehow become what I could not quite imagine for myself. I went west because that's what one does when one craves something new and doesn't know how to find it otherwise. The Oprah Daily article also cautions one to be aware of your vulnerability. I wasn't vulnerable at the time. I was directionless, but anything seemed possible. Even if looking back now, I feel my imagination and dreams weren't as big as I wish they could have been. I was vulnerable, however, when Adam suggested Arbeck. I needed something positive in my life. I needed community, people. I would have gone anywhere Adam suggested. And once I got there, I would have been willing to do most anything. But that wasn't required. That wasn't Camp Arbeck, nor was that our counselor, Arthur. As Adam recently said to me when I asked him about Arthur, Arthur was a great role model for us because he was cool, but also really into the same sort of geeky stuff that we were mostly getting into that weren't always quite as cool or mainstream away from the safe place that our back was. A safe place. It's true that our back was a wonderful place for all the reasons summer camp can be wonderful and the JCC was not. It felt like a community, and in this case, a place where people who felt like outcasts and freaks were welcomed and embraced, our weirdness indulged, though more than that, encouraged. Even more than all that, though, it was a place where we could both follow what interested us and bend it to our vision. As Adam also shared, we got away with some programming changes, which felt transgressive and cool. It was like we were part of a secret club or a sub-camp embedded within the camp. Which is to say, liking comic books or Star Wars might have been almost normal, but obsessively reading comic books and heading to the local comic book store Fat Cat Books to pick them up on release day, or watching Star Wars 25 times, much less playing backgammon during our downtime at camp building clay monsters and wire barbarians in arts and crafts, or writing and illustrating a DIY camp newsletter replete with poems such as the one I wrote, Where Did the Counselors Go? After an odd rash of mid-camp firings, is much less so. The Oprah Daily piece also has this to say about cults. What really matters is what differentiates a benign cult from a destructive cult i.e. the one you really need to watch out for. There are healthy cults in the sense that you know what you're getting into. This could apply to followers of the Grateful Dead, for example. They don't control who you talk to and what you read. They answer your questions honestly, and you're free to leave if it doesn't work for you. I did leave Camp Barbeck. I found other communities. High school track and cross-country, ultimate frisbee, which I played in tournaments across America and Canada, the Grateful Dead, graduate school and social work, which led to work with nonprofits and child advocates in nearly every state of the country. More recently, I've also met writers far and wide, and as much as people enjoy piling on events such as EWP, as a writer who always had day jobs and never attended an MFA program or participated in a retreat or fellowship, the trips I took to AWP when I first started getting published were the closest experience I had to attending RBAC since my ultimate Frisbee days ended 25 years ago. At some point, 
our back no longer works for me, though, which is to say that at some point, camp ends, especially when one chooses to attend a day camp, as we all did. Other things happened as well. Eric had long since moved to Los Angeles after his father took a job at UCLA, and along the way it was suggested that I could live with his family for the summer of 1981, something I would repeat the summer of 1982 before entering high school. I had been out there before, but those summers were especially impactful. I watched Blade Runner upon its release there, as well as Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T., Stripes too, and I loved it. Mesmerized by the future L.A., Harrison Ford, the lights, violence, and grime, I also watched the decline of Western civilization there upon its release and hated it. The jarring music, violence, just how grimy everyone was. I spent countless hours at Santa Monica Pier and riding waves at Santa Monica State Beach. I tried to skateboard. I took a karate class. I hung out at Venice Beach and loved the energy and freakishness as much as anywhere I'd ever been. I discovered and consumed Carrie and Catcher in the Rye. I obsessed over two substantive yet unconsummated summer crushes. The first summer, a bikini-clad blonde beach goddess. The second, a tall, dark-haired beauty Eric and I met when we went hiking for eight days in the Sierra Nevadas with a teen group from Beverly Hills High School. I failed to stay weird, though. My focus shifted to girls, sports, alcohol, and drugs, and away from science fiction, DIY camp newspapers, poetry, and comic books, or all the things Adam, Eric, and I had valued, focused on, and given our lives color and meaning. I don't recall if this shift was conscious. I just know that it happened. It can feel now that I failed to stay on that original path, but I wonder if maybe it's all been one path, an evolution, those years of camp, one stop along the way, our bag serving as a safe place in a way station as I tried to figure things out, find myself and my place, any place, a benign cult as it were. When I watch a show such as Freaks and Geeks, I see how I was one of the geeks before and up until middle school, and that outside of my willingness to fight bullies, and sometimes win, their experiences were ours. That changed, though. I recently read an interview with Seth Rogen in the New York Times Magazine, Seth Rogen, and The Secret Happiness, where he talks about being weird and having weird parents, much like mine, Jewish, progressive, lefty, loose with rules, not much money, and how he felt alone until he met his future friends and creative partners. One weekend, hugging the wall at a bat mitzvah, Rogen noticed two other guys also standing on the sidelines, watching with longing as the other kids had fun. With a sinking feeling, he recognized himself in that. But then, quote, I noticed two other guys. They weren't standing on the side watching with longing. They actually seemed like they wanted nothing to do with the girls or the boys or the dancing or any of that. These boys were happily picking up discarded glow sticks, cutting them open and pouring the glowing noxious goop that was inside all over their hands. End quote. He went over and started cracking open those glow sticks, too. He'd found his people. I know that feeling. It happened before I attended our back and first met Eric and Adam, but it was nurtured, took shape, and found expression there. I wonder at times if Adam, Eric, and I might have found our way onto a similar creative path as Rogan and his friends have. I failed to follow our initial inclinations to live as we did then, though I do now, as do Adam and Eric, who are still friends of mine and who I collaborate with once in a while on projects 
but who were also more loyal to that original path than I was for years. Some people lament that they peaked in high school or their teen years, or at least that those are the highlights of their lives. I never feel that way. Instead, when I read about people like Seth Rogen and his friends, I realize I would have done every phase of this life differently. I would have been embraced being more creative and weird, taken more chances, and danced on the streets of Provincetown free at a loft. Well, that's not totally the case. I would have done every phase differently except those summers at Arbeck. There's nothing I'd change about that, amazing as it sounds, even now. Well, again, uh, those are both great contributions. Uh, ben, great story. Rachel, as always, you know, I've, I've now done uh, two podcasts with Rachel as my guest. And each time the interview is over, I wish I could just hang out with her. She's fantastic. I know. This is my first go around. But yeah, I'd like to hang out with Rachel next time we're in San Francisco. Yeah. And admit it, you, you kind of want to, you kind of wish you went to Jewish camp now, don't you? I do. Um, I think I do. I don't know. There was I, the song part. I did, I, you know, I'm, I songs are kind of goofy. It's generally, it's a little less doctrinaire than Christian camp from what I've heard. Yeah. Ours was medium. It wasn't like, I know some are a lot more extreme than the ones I went to. So, but I've, yeah. I heard, uh, I had a friend who went to, it was like a Christian brothers Catholic camp, but I, it just sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Very, very authoritarian, very... Well, those Catholics, very, like, yeah, a lot of, lots yeah. of rules, but I guess, you know, all religions do. But uh, <laughs> I was there for the girls, and for, we didn't get a chance to talk about him, but just shout out to Barry Davis, if you're listening. Old, old <laughs> Barry Davis can of beer is what we call him in his, in his 20s, but he, um, a good old friend I haven't seen for years, but uh, he and I went to camp together. Uh, so, yeah, we want to thank um, Brett Battistain and... Our fine folks and friends at Eavesdrop Studios, our podcast network was not really ours, but we're on their podcast network. So um, you can find out more at ease-drop.com. And I want to thank Jared Bostrom for both the theme music and for integrating that theme music or kind of, I guess, I don't know if it's theme music, it's just music in there, but um, into the episode and just for doing a the lion's share of the early editing, then Brett rounding it all out for us in his awesome way. And who else, Larry? What do we want to say? Well, you know, what I'm thinking is now, as we're, we're winding down this season and we're getting closer to Tree Fort and Story Fort, maybe you would like to use this time to tell people where to go to learn more about Story Fort, if there is yeah, such a place. Yeah, you can look. It's up on Story Fort, one word, um, no capital F. Um on Facebook, um, Story Fort Fest on Twitter, and also um, on Instagram, and then treefortmusicfest.com is where you can get tickets, you can check out merch, you can see this 434 something like bands are coming in September. Um, and uh, we have like, I don't know, over 100 Story Forters too. So we're, we're doing this. So yeah, come we're going to see you at the fest. Um, as for us here at Story Forward, we do have a Facebook group you can join, and we have been promising other social media since we started this season. Have not yet delivered on it, but it is in the works. Maybe I by promise. the time, maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll have a Twitter and you an can, Instagram. I'll let you tweet. 
but uh, <laughs> if we can hire one of our minions to do the tweeting, perhaps one of the youngsters to do the do the tweeting. Oh, what, um, oh! And- speaking of hiring, that costs money. Oftentimes, and we have we oh. we do like we have there's a chip jar component to this whole podcast at the at the eavesdrop website. So you can in our show notes too, I believe that appear on all the major platforms. So you can help support us, buy us lunch, that kind of thing. Yep. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. But before you go, we'd like to remind you to always keep the story moving forward. That's right. Advance the narrative, y'all.